Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Forrest Wickman, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Edition. On today's show, Twin Peaks returns after 25 years with David Lynch at the helm for 18 new episodes. Then, for 33 seasons, the reality juggernauts The Bachelor and The Bachelorette have been dogged by accusations of racism and indifference towards their contestants of color, never featuring a black bachelor or bachelorette until now. Uh, We'll discuss. And finally, Alex Tizan's family emigrated to the U.S. when he was a young child bringing along a servant he later realized was his family's slave. Now he's published a story titled My Family's Slave, which is on the cover of the new issue of The Atlantic. Steve, Julia, and Dana are all aboard a plane to Australia as we're recording, so today I'm joined by my fellow culture editor, Laura Bennett. Hi, Faris. Hey, Laura. Uh, and Aisha Harris, uh, a culture writer here at Slate and also the host of another great Slate podcast that you should all uh, be subscribed to represent. Hello, Forrest. Hey, Aisha. <laughs> uh, I think this is the first all millennial gab fest in history. What? Don't call me a millennial. Why? Just kidding. This you is are a millennial, <laughs> whether you want to be or not. This is the, you can't just like self-identify as not a millennial. Of my no. generation description. No opting out. <laughs> um, all right, let's get into Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks debuted on ABC in 1990 and was canceled the next year. Since then, the David Lynch and Mark Frost series has come to be considered a founding text of modern prestige television, and especially the brain-teasing shows we call Puzzle TV. Now Lynch, Frost, and Showtime have brought the series back after just over 25 years, with Kyle MacLachlan once again in the lead as Special Agent Dale Cooper. Uh, Let's listen to a clip. Okay, Lucy. Thank you. Margaret, what can I do for you? Hawk. My log has a message for you. Okay. Something is missing, and you have to find it. It has to do with Special Agent Dale Cooper. Dale Cooper. What is it? The way you will find it has something to do with your heritage. This is a message from the log. Okay, Margaret. 
Thank you. Good night, Hawk. <laughs> Laura, you're our TV editor, uh, so I'm yes. going to start with you. We've been tiptoeing around mm-hmm. talking about this show for the last three days. I've been dying to talk about it. I think I still have a sense of how you felt about the show. How much did you hate the reboot? Of oh, <laughs> if I show my cards that much? Well, you know what? I would say I hate is definitely a strong word. I disliked the experience of watching it and was frustrated. I was so steeped in old Twin Peaks because, just to shamelessly plug some Slate content, uh, we had produced a you know few, couple of weeks before this new season aired a package of stories called um, it was called It Is Happening Again: How Twin Peaks Paved the Way for Peak TV, and it was a sort of a parcel of stories laying out the you know long shadow that the original Twin Peaks cast and grappling with its legacy and all the ways in which it it knit itself into the current TV landscape. So with that as my most immediate context, I felt. Uh, you know, alienated from the new episodes, probably in all the ways that Lynch intended me to feel alienated from the new episodes. I would say, but, you know, as I, as I thought about it, I, here's basically where I landed. What I admire about these episodes is that, is the way they stand out in the context of the reboot boom. There are so many shows on TV right now that are reincarnated versions of their former selves. And, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, it's impossible to categorize them alongside Lynch. But in terms of market incentives, incentives, at least it makes sense. I mean, just to name a few, X-Files, Full House, Gilmore Girls, Arrested Development, like there's a billion of them. And in many of these cases, even in the reboots that worked best, it was clear that these were what Seppenwall, Alan Seppenwall, described in a piece that he recently wrote as brand cash-ins, you know, safe and circumscribed ways to capture an existing fan base and exploit lingering cultural cachet. And, uh, you know, this is one way to handle peak TV as a content creator to sort of refill a series-shaped hole in the culture with a slightly updated version of whatever filled it before. And obviously, Twin Peaks is a brand cash-in in a lot of ways, but it kind of under the banner of a brand cash-in has basically smuggled something just outrageous onto TV. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I feel like the only person cashing in here is David Lynch. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Like, I don't know if Showtime's going to make money off this. Like, I, I, it seems like they spent a ton of money to do 18 episodes. He directed all of them. I would be shocked if they did. I mean, and I wanted to raise one question, Farce, that I also wanted to hear your thoughts on, because you wrote a great piece for our Twin Peaks package about how the original Twin Peaks was so fundamentally in conversation with the network TV landscape, the context it aired in, that it was tough to fathom what that version of a show would look like now. And I would say, I mean, I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on that. I would say it, it's no longer in conversation with soap operas or procedurals or, you know, thrillers in the way that it was before. It arguably is playing on prestige TV in a way. You know, it's a kind of trippy anti-hero drama with, full of sexual violence against women and lurid death scenes and safaris through the grimy underbelly of society. But the thing I have trouble seeing is how it's subverting these tropes this time around. To me, I would say it felt a little bit like it was leaning on them in the absence of a plot at certain points as a way to recapture our attention when it was drifting from the like total bananas phantasmagoria in front of us that then we would see like just a crazy Lynchian murder or, you know, rape scene. But, um, I wanted to hear your thoughts on this as our foremost expert on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to say to what extent it's in conversation with today's TV 
basically just because it has created or, or you know it has so heavily heavily influenced so much of today's right. tv so like for example there is a and i can say this without spoiling uh, anything really. Um, there's a shot at the beginning of the third episode that is there, or, or like a sequence, a long sequence that is very much like a long sequence in Legion. Uh, right. and, and, you know, uh, the third episode that- is crazy, by the way. I, the whole show is crazy <laughs> so far, at least. Um, Aisha, I want to bring you, you in here. You just watched, I think, the entire first season of Twin Peaks. We've got a right? Twin Peaks Rube in the house. Yes. I can't wait to hear your impressions of this season. Yeah. I binged about the first six and a six and a half episodes. And then I watched the final ha- other half because uh, there's eight episodes in the first season. And then I watched the rest the next day. Um, it was a lot. <laughs> did, uh, so I, I guess my main question is, did you like the original series and just how did the new one play having, you know, just watched the first season back to back? Yeah. So I liked the original series. Um, it was the the thing that i found surprising was that it was not as weird but then also weirder than the way people have described it for years so like i went into it with all these expectations of like this like the show does not like things will happen and then there will be no explanation for it so i i went went into it like expecting that but then because i was expecting that i was like all right so which one of these things are, are is not going to matter or is like just a random uh plot line um so i i kind of enjoyed that i enjoyed seeing um Kyle McLaughlin not as Trey uh from <laughs> Sex in the City because that is the first uh that's that was my first introduction to him and it's oh, wow. weird to me to see him like in this role. Um and I thought all the characters are really, really fascinating. I was also struck by how well not no, I wasn't surprised, but how like white the show yep. is <laughs> save for the Asian <laughs> character. And then I did watch in between watching the first season and watching the the first two episodes of this new season. I I watched our recap that we did our veto recap, which was actually very helpful because so I would have been so lost if I hadn't. I hadn't known, you know, all the things about bodies being inhabited by right, that's Bob key. and, that's and like, spoiler alert. Oh, it's not like really twenty joking, twenty year old spoiler. It's, um, it's not a spoiler. So yeah, so so going into it because the first two episodes of this new season don't really have much going on at all there's like two or three plot lines that are drawn out for like minutes at a time with nothing not not even dialogue happening um so that was like really it was way easier for me to follow than the first season whoa like that's shocking to me (laughs) really i i don't know because there's not there's nothing really happening like and because i and maybe it's because it was just so fresh in my mind i don't know how recently you rewatched the first season laura but like for me, I was like, oh, this is all, oh, I get it. Some of these characters, I want, like, I had to figure out, cause I'm not good with faces or names, and I had to remind myself, like, are these new characters or are these from the old one? Um, but I found it, I found it a bit slow, um, and tedious. I fell asleep a couple times and had to re- go back and rewind. Yeah. Um, I, my least favorite part is probably the the guy, the kid who's like watching the TV or that weird months, like weird how like watching the, the box. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the the 2001 sort of space odyssey thing. Well, I kind of liked that. Yeah. I feel like we have to dwell on this. <clears throat> right. I, I, I think that this so is bizarre. the sequence that 
signals to the viewers exactly what the relationship between this show and the viewers is. And basically, yeah. I know. So and I think a, that's maybe what I was kind of like not into was how like blatant, blatant and obvious it seemed of like, you know, it's, I don't know. It, it, yeah. You sit there and you think you're watching nothing and then it's going to come out and eat your face. And I think he even said, like, so That's a spoiler. <laughs> the character who's watching this glass box that in many ways looks like a TV, he's sitting on a couch that looks like a living room couch. He's snacking on something, I think. It's maybe not popcorn, but it might as well be popcorn. He's also got and a the, weird affect where he seems slightly sinister, which was something right. that struck me. Right. I mean, yeah, it's hard to know anything about this character, which is a part of why I think it makes it so easy to identify with him when you're the viewer and you just start to realize this dynamic of like, yes, you're watching somebody essentially watch TV and you're essentially put in their position because he starts saying like, oh man, nothing's ever happening. Like this is boring. Basically the stuff you were just saying, Aisha. And then the show is just basically says like, okay, if you want something to happen, here you go. And gives you this incredibly horrifying. Did, did you not, did you guys not find that sequence amazing? I found it amazing. When something finally happened. I have really, I did like Um, it a lot. I mean, yeah, it, it, but then it just felt like a very simple, like, horror movie. Like, it felt like the most base version of a horror movie you could think of, which I'm not opposed to. But it, I also, I don't know, I just felt like the payoff, I could kind of see it coming. I, right. And I also felt like this season, I want to hear more of your thoughts, Farz, but this season had an, had, a lot of really captivating, well-wrought and choreographed vignettes. Like, I loved the Las Vegas casino scene. Mm-hmm. With, um, yeah, I like that. I thought that scene was just so well done and so sort of self-contained. As It was hilarious. It was well-paced. It was, I mean, and those are, uh, you know, Lynch does not want to be sort of classically well-paced most of the time, but that happened to be a great sequence. Um, I loved that episode with the glass box and the when something finally happened. But the original Twin Peaks had enough emotionally intelligible moments to sort of buttress or anchor the surrealism. And the moments felt loosely connected enough where not always, but in many cases where, you know, Laura Palmer's mom's animal moan and the long pan down the telephone cord. Those are moments that stick in my head as someone who loves uh, Lynchian surrealism, but also classic, uh, drama and plot. And so, you know, it, it was a form of pandering to people like me. And it was, those are the most classic evidence of the Mark Frost, David Lynch mind meld and collaboration. And I liked that. I, I sort of leaned on that in my appreciation of the show. And this, uh, reboot just totally. Mark Frost is like a footnote in the vision of this season. Yeah, totally. I mean, I and I don't really think it feels like TV anymore. I no. mean, more than any other TV program I can think of, this felt like the beginning of an 18-hour movie. And a big and big part of that is that well, I mean, I, I find that exciting in the sense that there's never been anything like this and what is this going to be like? And, and 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 so I guess what I'm saying there by why it felt more like a movie than TV to me is how uh, driven it is by the visuals and not by the writing in the sense of like the dialogue. Like mm-hmm. as much as TV has grown for better and for worse, it is still a writer's medium. And that leads to many of its greatest strengths and many of its greatest weaknesses where sometimes I'm like, man, there's just nothing going on visually in the show or there's like more going on than before. If you're watching a show like Fargo or Mr. Robot, in fact, a lot of these shows that are influenced by Twin Peaks, but this is just feels like something driven by a director yep. who a is point. making like, 
an art film. And I think there's a big audience of people who really loved Twin Peaks, but probably do not like, you know, Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive and certainly not Inland Empire, um, his more experimental, more recent movies. And I think that's who this new season or reboot or whatever we want to call it is for. I mean, I think I also get the comparisons that people have made to this and something like Breaking Bad, which also had very long moments of like no dialogue. Now, granted, that was a nowhere near a surreal um, experience to watch as Lynch is, but like, what is that actually? Um, but I also, I think um, there have been comparisons made like when Atlanta came out last year that it was like Twin Peaks with black people, um, which I, I, I actually can kind of see it um, just because there are those sort of very, there's small moments in, in Atlanta, especially like the invisible car is the, like the one that like jumps out to me the most as like the, um, the most Lynchian sort of moment where like they don't explain it. It's just an invisible car and right. it just exists in the world. There's like surrealism on that show. Right. All right. So we're going to stop there for now. We have a lot more to say, especially more spoilery things that might bring in the third and fourth episodes. Uh, so we're going to talk about those in plus. Uh, and please also, uh, let us know what you think of the new Twin Peaks, the old Twin Peaks, all things Twin Peaks at facebook.com slash culturefest. Before we move on to The Bachelorette, let's do the business. Laura, what you got? The Summer Strut playlist is still taking submissions. So submit your favorite, most struttable summer songs by posting them in our Summer Strut thread on Facebook or by tagging them on Twitter with hashtag Summer Strut. Also, we want to tell you about a new show you may have seen drop into the Culture Gap Fest feed. It's called the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club, and it's a look at how conspiracy thrillers like All the President's Men, The Parallax View, and Get Out represent paranoia and anxiety on the big screen. It is a show for Slate Plus members only, but the first episode is free for everyone. Check it out in the Culture Gap Fest feed in case you missed it. I'm so excited for that. Me too. And we should say we planned it out like way before we actually had Watergate in this country. That's right. Mm-hmm. Dumb Watergate, as John <laughs> Oliver has called it. In Slate Plus today, we'll be talking about, well, we'll be talking more about Twin Peaks because we could not get enough. Um, and Slate Plus members get bonus segments like that one from all your favorite Slate shows plus ad-free podcasts. It also happens that now is the best and easiest time ever to try Slate Plus. You can get Slate Plus for free for 90 days by downloading our new iOS app at slate.com slash app, and you can get all the benefits of Slate Plus for three months. It's a brand new app and by far the easiest way to get those bonus segments and ad-free podcasts. So get Slate Plus by trying the app for free for 90 days at slate.com slash app. Thanks, Laura. The Bachelorette is the long-running reality competition dating show in which scores of beautiful women or hunky men compete for the affections of the titular bachelor or bachelorette, an equally beautiful-slash-hunky woman-slash-man. The show's record with race has been mixed, to say the least. Over 33 seasons, there has never been a black bachelor or bachelorette until now. Uh, let's listen to a clip. 
I heard there's an emergency. Apparently, there's a beautiful woman here getting bored to death. Save me, save me. I can tell that these guys are really trying to make the best possible first impression on me. I want to give you my word that I'm here to help you understand me. Mm -hmm. And I will commit myself to understanding you as well. I love that. I really feel like I'm the luckiest woman in the world right now. What's up, Rachel? What's up? Jamie. Nice to meet you, Jamie. Nice to meet you as well. You look beautiful. Thank you. His dress is ridiculous. Well, thank you. It's just one unbelievably handsome man after another. Rachel. And they just keep coming. You look amazing. It's so great to meet you. Thank you. And so I hope to, to talk to you more inside. You will. Better. See you inside. Love. How many men am I meeting tonight? There are so many. It's raining men. I just want you to know that this is the only time I'm going to have the upper hand in the relationship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Laura, this is the only time I'm going to have the upper hand in this relationship because I had never watched this show. Uh, Wait, doesn't that give me the upper hand? No, I'm just yeah, you have the upper hand because yeah. you are an, a, a scholar of The Bachelorette and The Bachelor. I would agree. So please talk about oh, God. why this matters briefly and also just how was this actually different because they didn't mention race. They mentioned race like once or they twice and I'm sure we'll get into time. that. Yeah. Oh, man. First of all, she's something else. She is so charming and so graceful. I was so taken with Rachel Lindsay and so outraged by my disgust for every single man who paraded in front of her. What a pageant of dolls. Even even the guy who had like a mini mannequin of himself. Even that gem of a human being. I just couldn't Uh, believe that. Anyway, this is not Jermaine, but just over and over again. This conversation is already degrading (laughs) into just like, who was the cutest? How nice was that person? That is the magic trick of this show, that that's the only level on which you can really analyze it. That's not true. But this was, a. I actually thought this was like a remarkably banal, um, um, season premiere. But here's the thing. Okay, just to give a little bit of context, I'm sure a lot of listeners already know this, but this is a, as The Bachelor itself said many times, a historic season, a season that's sure to get everyone talking, which is the only oblique way in which they acknowledge the fact that this is the first black protagonist this franchise has ever had. So since premiering in the early 2000s, The Bachelor and its spinoff The Bachelorette have starred a panoply of white bread contestants with a few notable exceptions, really just one. There was Juan Pablo Galvez, one of the most boring and (laughs) insufferable talking mannequins to ever grace our airwaves. Um, And there was one season of The Bachelorette, I mean, of The Bachelor, when the winner, I believe, was half Filipina, Catherine Giaducci. But overall, I mean, this is it's just it's it's a you know publicly acknowledged fact that this is an unbelievably white franchise and that for whatever reason, for all of these years, they have sort of failed to fix it or really even acknowledge it. And that the handful of contestants of color on every season get swiftly eliminated. So as almost a matter of policy, um, if you are black on The Bachelor, you're out in a few episodes. And that has been um I mean, it's been like a real blight on the legacy of the show, and it's been the case over and over again, season after season. And so, and that is the choice of the bachelor or the bachelorette, like the person who's the lead on the show, right? The, or is there some sense that the producers of the show are pushing for the elimination of the contestants of color? It's really hard to say, but it's, a, I would guess it's a combination. If you've and it's watched also Unreal. A well, so, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I, uh, you were on this show before to talk about Unreal, I believe, and the second season of Unreal, uh, which 
imagined what it would be like to have uh, a black contestant on a very bachelor bachelorette type show right uh and so how weird season did this compare to that and i don't know did you like feel anything watching this or did it just you don't normally watch the show right no no so i i i think i've watched two before this episode i'd watch maybe two episodes of either the bachelor i can't remember one of the bachelor or bachelorettes um in college because one of my roommates was obsessed with it so i like watched a couple but i've never this is show has never appealed to me and it's not just because it's not there's never a person of color on the show it's just like i don't know it, it the, the whole premise of this show is just weird because you get you 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 ostensibly have people competing to find love. They get there, and it's like you would. You, you, it, the assumption is just that you're automatically the person who's there to find love is automatically going to have to choose from one of these twenty five thirty bachelors, and the people who are there are automatically going to like this girl and be like, "I want her." When in real life, that's not how these things work, and like. You know, the producers have tried to say, like, oh, it's kind of like, well, now that we have online dating, like, it's it's even more acceptable now. Like, people are, like, it's way easier for us to find contestants. And it's like, well, no, this is not like online dating or meeting someone at a bar because, like, you are limiting your pool to 30 people and you're expected yes, to hilarious. find someone within that 30 people. Well, I would say two things in response to that. One thing they did with this season that, you know, is arguably a logical move is that they announced that Rachel Lindsay was The Bachelorette much earlier than usual. Right. And so that theoretically, or at least in the sort of talking points of the producers, gave men who had watched her season and sort of taken a liking to the what idea of her. What men are watching this season? I'm uh, s- some of them. That, that was <laughs> another thing that baffled yeah, me. Right, I was right, like, they, they all kept saying, oh, I watched her season. I'm like, are you really watching this season? Right. Or- <laughs> and also men who watch probably watch with their girlfriends and then they're not eligible to be on The Bachelor. Anyway, that's something that they said that the, the idea was to sort of introduce viewers to her earlier and give them – I usually it's just people sign up to be on the idea of The Bachelor. Like they, they don't even know who they're you know in it for. And right. then um, – so, OK, that's one thing that the producers would say, I'm sure. And the other thing is – I've said this before on a previous installment of the Culture Gap Fest, but what I really enjoy about this show – and I am a longtime fan. It seems strong, but I'm a longtime uh, student. Oh, come on. Student. <laughs> <laughs> and lifelong fan of this Thank show. <laughs> um, and uh, it's not, even when it's not love, it's this heady cocktail of competition and lust and charisma that makes the show feel real. And that's true. This is a game show. And when you put a bunch of testosterone-ridden meatheads into a house and you say compete over this woman they will and they'll convince themselves because that's how humans work that this is a prize worth attaining and then after the show is over that's why these relationships break up in like two weeks most of the time um because you need the sort of strictures of that game show in order to um delude yourselves into believing it but and that i'm that's not always true but it's reliably enough true that it makes every season pretty watchable. So so I, I feel like what I'm taking from uh, how you answered my question is that really there was not that much different about well, this premiere right. beyond the like uh, nod from you, you call him what, Chris Harrison, I guess. Is oh, his you name. sure He's call so him bland, that. I, <laughs> I love Chris him. Harrison so much. I'm fascinated. Wait, what do you love about him? Oh, that's a side note. I he like oh actually God, managed to have about less charisma <laughs> than like Jeff Probst. No, he's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Probst. Oh man, uh, uh, listen, Chris Harrison has been hosting this show since the very beginning. I he 
uh, whatever. I'm I'm fascinated by the he's idea. He's no that they Ryan Seacrest. I'll I'll well, say exactly. that. Exactly, Ryan Seacrest is no. much better. Like he's he actually here's what I like, say about speaks with feeling. He also seems yeah. like he actually like cares. In, in, right. in like a hopped up on Harrison, too much coffee way. Harrison this dude was cares. just a suit. He I cares think. so much. If you ever heard him interviewed, he cares more than anything. And also, Harrison <laughs> is the perfectly selected um, generic, generic anodyne male viewer sort of surrogate who can be your Sherpa through this, you know, world of hot male specimens to, without being so, threatening. To be fair, like in this premiere episode, he really wasn't there at all. No. Like but, it was really more about her yeah. and these guys. Like I get the feeling that he's usually way more like there right. than you, this one. Right. Well, we can say we can save Chris Harrison for our next Slate Plus segment. <laughs> we'll just do Chris Harrison only. But the one thing I would say about you raise an interesting question about whether this season really felt different. And what I would say is, I mean, we um, the three of us have discussed this a little bit, but there is one mention that I could count of the particular well, way two technically. What was the second? So they bring they rebring up her the comment that one of the contestants right. Right. made at That's the right. previous one right. about. So for a little bit of just context, um, what is it called? The after the rose ceremony? After the final rose. After the final rose. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the after the final rose of the last season of The Bachelor, which Rachel was on, um, she they she actually got to meet. I think this was also new. She got to meet for the yes, like her. That was new. Yeah, she got to meet right. four of the contestants who are going to be on her season of The Bachelorette. Right. And one of them was this white guy who like comes up and he says something along the line. He doesn't even get it right. He like says it in a way that like he twists the words around like the phrase, but he's like. I've gone black and now I'm never going to go back, which is like, uh, <laughs> like how did she handle I can't it? So believe, yeah. She like she acted just, like she, he act- actually asks, was that okay? Right. And so, and, and when he is reintroduced to her on this premiere, mm-hmm. comes out of the limo and he asks her like, was that okay? And she's like, Oh, it's all right. And this is like part of, part of my issue with this bachelorette who I, I will say she's very charming. She's lovely. But to me, she's charming to the point of like, I'm just going to accept everything yes. that's happening. That's and exactly right. I, I, I worry that she, because yeah. she's the first black bachelorette, that if she shows any sign of not liking something that these guys do or being, cause there's also a guy who like tickles her. And so oh, she just kind of lets God. these things wash over her. And I'm just like, right. Ugh. I think that's such a good point. Given that this was my first time watching it, I also couldn't help but notice that while this show, it's considerably more diverse racially, it's like not diverse in really any other <laughs> they're, way. They're like all people, tall. They hunky. all have the exact same build. And when then they, when they showed the, uh, I guess previous, uh, bachelor contestants, basically a bunch of women, they all also were like all tall all skinny all had straight hair all were conventionally like white standards oh, attractive yeah, for sure. in every single way one of the contestants though one of the male contestants calls her like a disney princess she's like she's so beautiful she looks like a disney princess i'm like all disney princesses have the same yeah. <laughs> form and but, it's and it yeah. seems like yeah she just has to act the disney princess right. on on this show yep, and she knows it like and her. she is playing that part excruciatingly well uh, before right, we boom. Get out of this segment. We have to talk about Waboom. Ugh, I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm uh, so sorry that I have so many thoughts. The Waboom guy <laughs> insisted. He basically looked at, uh, like, turned towards the camera and just dared us to talk about Waboom right. for a significant portion of the runtime. Uh, so if you don't know what we're talking about, uh, we'll try to play a clip here. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> 
basically he's just this guy who has is trying to make a uh, he's trying to make fetch happen but fetch is waboom <laughs> uh he has a t-shirt with his own picture on it and the words waboom i believe <laughs> I the so emphasis much. is on wa and not the boom uh, and the only word he says essentially over and over again is wa-boom. And I hate myself for doing an impression of him because that's exactly what he wants. He also has a, yeah. what do you call it? The foghorn? Like the thing that you yeah. can the speak mega, right. The right. megaphone. So let's just quickly say, the one thing I would say about the wa-boom guy is that this, almost more than anything on this pretty boring premiere, made me feel like the franchise had, franchise had actually jumped the shark in a pointed way. Because there's always the dude who's clearly in it to promote himself or plug his business and play his guitar and get a record deal. There's a pantsapreneur one season who wanted to sell pants. But the waboom idiot is that general idea distilled into one asinine tick. He is human merch. He's a catchphrase with legs. He says one thing over and over again. He makes no pretense of giving two Fs about Rachel. And he made me feel disconsolate both with the franchise and with myself for watching it. So, I, I mean, so yeah, the, clearly this is what the show wanted us to talk about, right? Is like Ugh. this meta narrative about somebody trying to co-opt the show. Uh, you think that's jumping the shark i actually I think, I think it's the it's most like, pristine example i would so much far. rather i mean i hated how this show tried to pretend like everything on it was natural sometimes i mean clearly right. like there's a little bit of winking but like when uh the the bachelorette just kept saying like oh all i have to do is be myself be myself she's saying this while swinging around a telephone pole <laughs> yes. which like no one does no one just gene kelly's like in everyday life um and this was a moment where I actually acknowledged the artifice and, and i'm not not a big reality TV watcher, but I find that's like the oh, only kind of reality I love... TV I can watch is when it's like yeah. Drag Race or something, right. where they're just like, "Yeah, this is all forced, and not, there's nothing real about it." Oh, I love when I acknowledge the artifice, but this guy was the biggest butt pain ever to. Oh, I mean, he sucked. Live. I mean, he was straight out of a, a VH1 reality show, right. like every VH1 reality show that has ever happened. He was yeah. the flavor flave. <laughs> um, but yes, I'm going to do a shameless plug. We will be talking about this on Represent as well, so you'll hear more of my thoughts on Waboo right. and all that I'm so crap. excited to listen. Uh, all right. Well, this show did not get my first impression, Rose. Uh, <laughs> but it's not, Laura, I know you'll be watching. Aisha, will you keep watching? I actually might. I don't know. I don't, it depends on if I have time to, let's be honest. All There's right. too much good TV. Yeah. Well, it's The Bachelorette. It's on ABC. Uh, let us know what you think of The Bachelorette and Webboom and <laughs> everything else at facebook.com slash culturefest. On to a considerably more sober topic. Uh, Alex Tizan's Atlantic cover story, My Family's Slave, chronicles his family's move from the Philippines to the United States with uh, Eudocia Tomas Pulido, I hope that I pronounced that correctly, uh, known as Lola. She cooked, she cleaned, she cared for the children, and though Tizan's parents had promised to pay her, they never did. Now, Tizan has grappled with the fact that for decades, his family kept in the United States an enslaved person. This story has garnered tons of attention among everyone I know, probably everyone you know, certainly everyone on Twitter for myriad reasons. Uh, on Twitter, there were threads, there were threads of threads, and there were even threads of threads of threads of responses. Uh, Laura, you're an editor. Would you have run this piece as is? Oh, man, that's a hard leading question. I mean... As it, I mean, every editor has a few tweaks they would make for context, or I probably would have changed the kicker, which was not my favorite. But listen, I would not judge. I do not pass any judgment on the Charlie Brilliant editor who ran this piece. I would. I think it's completely worth running. 
Oh, I mean, I think it was worth running, but I feel like I would have presented it completely differently. I would like it to sounds... hear your thoughts on it. It sounds like you have strongly felt beliefs on how you would have presented it. Yeah, I mean, the end, to me, the ending was the biggest right. problem. Essentially, this piece, it's told from Tizan's perspective. It has very little of Polito's perspective. Um, he did try to sort of ask her about her life um, while she was alive, but I think it's pretty clear that this is somebody who was, I think, still grappling with this very troubling aspect of his life um, when he died. Uh, we know this because there was an, uh, an obituary that ran um, in the Seattle Times a few years ago when Polito died that did not mention the fact that she was a slave. I th- think it's pretty clear that Tizan was sort of still coming to terms with this, and I don't think he ever really finished... Um, grappling with it sufficiently i also don't fully as you say i i you know i can't say i would have done better in a similar um situation i think slavery you know corrupts everyone involved um and i i think it you know had terrible effects on both Plato and on tizan um but the story ends uh it, it tells the story of how uh, Polito, uh, raised him, you know, came to the United States with, uh, Tizan and his family. Uh, they promised that they were going to give her money that she could then, s- uh, send back to the Philippines. Uh, they say that they never got fin- financially stable. So that the, the, the Tizan's parents, uh, say that they never got fin- financially stable. So they never did give her money. Um, then they divorced. Uh, uh, eventually the mother died and Tizan ended up living with um, Polito, at which point he did start uh, giving her an allowance in addition to room and board. It was uh, $200 um, a month, I believe. Or no, $200 a week. Yeah. Um, in other words, something like $10,000 a year, which is an amount of money that some people have uh, found disappointing. So that's, I know that was a lot. It's a, it's a long story. I think it's absolutely worth li- reading. Um, but I think it's also worth talking about and maybe being critical of. Um, Aisha, I, I don't know. You spent a lot of time thinking about representation. What did you make of, of this piece and the way it depicted Lola and, and would you have run it as is? Yeah, it's tough because he died before this was finished. And, it seems very clear. Like, I don't know, even if he hadn't died, if the thing that people are having a hard time grappling with, um, which I maybe disagree with, is mainly like just what he says and the way in which his family wound up treating her and what the way he in adulthood wound up treating her, which I mean, I, I want to know that that happened. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with putting that in the piece and, and saying that that happened. Um, I do think, though, that it does seem very clear by the end of it that, like, he still hasn't fully confronted what has happened to him and what he did to Lola, who it, it should be say that's not her. Well, you've been saying, was it Pope? Polito? Polito is her name. And yeah, the piece calls her Lola, which I guess is an honorific um, in Tagalog that is hard to translate and means something like grandmother, grandmother, but not exactly grandmother. Right. Um, So I, I, I just think that for me, the thing that struck me the most about this piece is the reaction that people had to it that, you know, that he's his family, um, 
Like before people started coming for it and saying this is like bad, a lot of people were saying, oh, this is like a lovely, touching story. Um, and when I think about it, I'm like, is it though? Because <laughs> it, it, I, I think, and some people have also made this point already, but like if this had been the story of a black person in the South being held captive by a white like in modern day, like 50 years ago, we would not be having this reaction. But because we assume that this is the way, like, oh, this was just the way it was in their country and they just brought it here or that they were just like an immigrant immigrant family trying to do their best. The, to me, that reaction was just kind of like a little, it, it felt bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, one thing we should say quickly here is like, I, I do uh think it is worth noting that you know none of us um are you know filipino american immigrants we don't right. really understand the cultural context here uh nonetheless uh personally i don't think that you can be like completely culturally relativist about this in a way that excuses it entirely and and yeah it, you're right it's important to note that he he died um before the piece came out the way it was presented by the atlantic was that it was finished basically that they were going to tell him something like the day after he died or the day he died um that it was running on the cover so i don't i don't think they plan to change it more and and yeah they, i i was struck by the way it was presented by the atlantic as as basically you know this is one of the best stories we've ever run and without even if you can't change the piece necessarily and i think it it's a very powerful account it did not run with a bunch of other pieces that gave larger context the kind of cultural talk context that we're talking about that i wish we had more of here um well, and I'm and, not sure and if maybe they some to like run with other pieces well but, but do, so so you're okay with running the story that is essentially like a, the a, a a slave owner um saying like i tried really hard in the end i found peace i don't think that's what he's saying i mean he's i think that i think i'm i'm okay with running the story i probably wouldn't have teased it as one of the best things they'd ever run if only because i don't think it was one of the best things they've ever run i thought it was a fascinating fraught totally compelling like just existentially disruptive piece to read and that as a piece of storytelling, it was worthwhile. I wish he, as Aisha said, which I think is a very good point, that I wish he had grappled with his complicity even more. And that would have made it a better, more moving piece um, if he'd been able to wrestle with that instead of just sort of petering out at the end. But that's not really his voice. He has this very sort of dry historical way of compiling emotional details you know he runs through his mother's diaries his father's abuses the way his mother got angry when lola fell ill and it's all horrifying and there's an unsparing direct explanatory quality to his storytelling he says it's a terrible thing to hate your own mother but that night i did she wasn't kept in leg irons but she might as well have been these are really i mean it's clear what he's saying with these statements he's not torturing himself but he's not holding anything back and i actually think it works for these purposes in that as this the very i thought very interesting jesse single piece in new york magazine pointed out this kind of descriptiveness permits us to see the mundanity of the self-justifications that led to this monstrous act right and i think that the one of the most horrifying and compelling things about this essay is how it can lull you with that ordinary procedural descriptiveness He's not particularly self-reflective. There's no operatic revelations or self-reckonings, just to sort of a slow burn, like the decades-long TikTok of this guy 
coming of age inside this banal and loving home that's actually a house of horrors. I mean, I would have even like just a a nod to the thing we found out a few days later with the Seattle Times obituary. If he had like brought that up in some way, even if it was just to say when she died, we said this in his dry way. And then like that would be to me at least a, a, a sign that he was at, at least acknowledged that he was complicit mm-hmm. because from this piece I don't get the sense that he is I feel like he puts most of the blame on his parents which I mean most of the blame should go to them because they sort of started this but like I I I think that is where where I where I draw the line at where this piece is like should be heralded in right. that way mm-hmm. I don't think that the fact that point. he does anything to sort of wrestle with it also should yeah. we read the ending because i think the ending was was troubling um maybe more so than i mean i think both of us had a pretty strong reaction to it and it was just the one line i would point to is he's taken lola's ashes back to her birthplace and he says i glanced at the empty tote bag on the bench and which contains her ashes and knew it was right to bring lola back to the place where she'd been born <laughs> And the formulation, it was right, man, that's a doozy. And I disliked yeah. it because it veered away from that bald, and unapologetic like she, directness. And that's her ashes. And, like, you don't get right. credit, right? You don't I, get I don't, credit. I, I don't know. Maybe and, you, if you're religious, it feels different or something. But right. I don't think that actually bringing her ashes is, like, the equivalent to bringing her home. No, not at all. No. <laughs> and that seems like it's kind of a, it, it, it was a more kind of squirrely self-soothing that tonally the rest of the piece didn't really do and it just seemed like an easy enough fix would be that it is right just really stuck in my craw. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I agree with Aisha. Like you described it as unsparing and in many ways. Like there's a lot that many people um, would leave out, like many people who do not have uh, more journalistic, who do not have as much journalistic integrity as Alex Tizan, like they might have left out larger parts of the story. But that, it, that I think leads to giving the sense that everything is in there when in fact, and we've learned this more and more since it's come out, everything was not in there. Right. The obituary, I don't know if we need more context on it, but I think I'm very glad Aisha mentioned that because reading that was sickening. It was really, really sick. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she's described that at one point in the obituary for the Seattle Times, she's described as um almost like being a part of the family and that she had the chance to go back, but then decided not to, which is like kind of a lie by omission, because like, at least based on what he says in his Atlantic piece, she asked to go back several times when they were younger kids and they were like, no, you can't go back. And then when he was when he finally took over, he asked her if she wanted to go back. But like. The other thing she, he doesn't really mention ever is like Stockholm syndrome or like the right. idea of like mm-hmm. when you are enslaved, essentially, after a while, you become resigned. You're probably not going to like she she also had like no basic skills like she couldn't. He talks about her not being able to like use her credit card that he gave her couldn't drive, couldn't drive. But that's she taught herself to read. That was another place where I was right. like, man, I wish you make maybe thought to teach her to read. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, it's hard. You know, it gets very personal. It does. I just think that there are questions that I wish this piece had raised. Right. And and again, like to to make the point that, you know, the great thing about it is that it does show the normalcy and how any of us could could conceivably be in this position. Um, But I would like to think that, like, if we're going to write this 3000 word or however long piece, like. At, at the end of it, we would come to some sort of like 
not there's no way to have closure, but a an assessment of yourself um, and what role you played in it. And it, it seems very clear that he he hadn't finished that yet. Um, would you guys recommend this piece to other people? Oh, of course. Oh, my God. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I I'm glad say, it was printed. I think you yeah. should. Yeah, I think I think, you know, it was right to publish it. I just think people should also seek out like the criticism of the piece and read about the larger context, read some of those threads of threads of threads, many of which are good. Right. And I would also say that the questions of should he have taught her to read? Should he have behaved differently in these kind of unfathomable circumstances are not um, any kind of referendum on how how interesting or worthwhile the piece is. Like that seems like a really separate conversation. All right. Well, surely people have stuff to say about this piece. People have been arguing about it for, uh, I don't know, about a week now. Uh, come let us know what you think on facebook.com slash culturefest. Now is the moment in the show when we endorse. Uh, Laura, what you got? Well, um, you know, this is a show that we've been talking a lot about recently within our cultural bubble, but um, Master of None, the new season, excellent season of television so far. Um, and as long as we're talking about preposterously unrealistic depictions of modern dating, I would call out one episode in particular. It's called First Date. Um, it is one of the best depictions of race and dating I've seen on TV, but it also is just, I mean... As a personal note, I uh, entered into my marriage before having an opportunity to do app dating, and I've always been sort of fascinated by how it works and what the metabolism it requires is and just sort of like the pace of it and the life that you lead when you're app dating night after night. I don't know if that's what people actually do, but I thought this episode nailed the mixture of alienation and exhilaration that you get when you when it sort of you have the illusion of being able to flip through face after face after face um, and how, you know, depressing it can be to, like, live through the aftermath of these dates when they're bad um, and to watch them fizzle. Anyway, it's a great episode of TV. First dates, master of none. Great First episode. Date. Great season. Yeah. Completely, completely agree. 100% cosign. Uh, Aisha, what do you got? So I'm going to endorse. I mean, this is probably not a surprise to anyone who's knows my obsession with Titus. Has Domino. seen you dance yeah. around to the tune of Pinot Noir on the pages of the Slate site? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, check it out. Uh, anyway, um, I'm going to endorse the second episode of the third season of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Titus Lemonades. And by lemonades, I mean they do a very, very well done parody, but like a parody that does a good job of weaving in aspects of Beyonce's Lemonade in a way that doesn't feel like flipping or thrown off, like it actually like makes sense in the plot. And I won't spoil it, but like it's a revelation uh for Titus. And the the lyrics are just really on point. Uh the nods to Beyonce are great. There's even like there's a appreciation of her, but then also like a, a minor dig that he makes, which is like about yeah, Beyonce, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is like pretty perfect. Um so yeah, I just I just love and even though it's like a year, it's been over a year now since Lemonade came out, like it still works. Like it, it's still hilarious and funny and it works in part because A, it's Titus and Titus is like the best thing about that show. Um and always has been. Oh, and he's also an incredible singer, which he's, is a big part of why it yeah. works, right? And he's actually like I don't we've heard him sing, but like 
in this song, like in this way, you're hearing him like really do like his like actual singing and he like belts some notes. Yep. It's great. So yeah, definitely going to endorse Titus laminating as he calls it. Also, Aisha has a beautiful singing voice and you guys should watch her parody of Titus. <laughs> of Pinot Agreed. Noir. <laughs> Second that also. Um, so in addition to those two things, which I also endorse, um, I feel like since Steve isn't here, I should uh, endorse some sort of sad sack white guy <laughs> guitar indie <laughs> rock um which is not the kind of thing i usually listen to but i was editing um our music critic carl wilson's review of the new mountain goats album uh isha will probably start giggling because she still doesn't know who the mountain goats are i have to say i uh as somebody who was uh before a pretty I don't know, studious, um, student of indie rock. I never really had my Mountain Goats buffets, partly because they have so many albums. But, um, this is actually an unreleased song that Carl, uh, links to and sort of quoted at length in his review. And I've just been listening to it nonstop. It's called You Are Cool. And it is an incredibly earnest and sweet and empowering song addressed to Basically, that person in your high school who was an outcast and got uh, bullied, but was actually, as the song title suggests, uh, quite cool. And people just did not appreciate it at the time. Um, and they might sort of still be haunted by this bullying. The bully might still be haunted. The song is fair to everyone involved, I think, would uh, is something that, you know, anybody could relate to because they either knew one of these people or bullied one of these people or were one of these people. Um and so the song is uh, You Are Cool by the Mountain Goats. It's good to be young, but let's not kid ourselves. It's better to pass on through those years and come out the other side with our hearts still beating, having stared down demons and come back breathing. People were mean to you, but I always thought you were cool. Clicking Laura, this was fun. This was so much fun. Thank you, guys. Aisha, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. And yeah, we should um, we should say that you, I think you're now headed to have a whole another conversation about the Bachelorette. Yes, it's going to be very fun. So everyone should listen. Absolutely. On Friday, um, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at slate.com/culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note on Facebook at facebook.com/culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network, and you can find an entire roster of our shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Aisha Harris and Laura Bennett, I'm Forrest Wickman, and we'll see you soon. Hold up. 